Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks from the Farnham U3A World History Group. The views expressed in this talk are representative of the views held at the time of the material being discussed. They do not necessarily represent the views of the speaker, the Farnham U3A World History Group, nor the team at the Mr T Podcast Studio. Some inherit wealth, others create their own fortunes. In the second of two talks, contrasting the lives of Waldorf Astor and Thomas Lipton, Joe Watson tells us the story of Thomas Lipton. Of all the people I've done talks about, this guy really is incredibly engaging. Not just his story, but that his whole personality. He's one of those people you think, oh, I wish if I could go back in history, you know, you could have met him. And so hopefully you'll feel similarly about him when I finish. So Thomas Johnston Lipton was born on May the 10th, 1848, the youngest of five children, though the only one that survived infancy. His parents, Thomas Senior and Francis, had emigrated in the 1840s to Scotland from Shannock Mills in Northern Ireland. The family lived in a four-room tenement at 10 Crown Street, Hutchinson. It was a typical, respectable working-class home. Lipton claimed he was born in the Gorbals, a notorious slum area, but research disproved that, though it was still a poor background. I should say from the outset that Lipton was a great storyteller with a flair for embellishment. Now, his family were able to afford to send him to primary school for threepence a week, where he mastered the three R's. He and his friends formed what the Glasgow Museum charitably called a club, but was probably a typical gang. He himself acknowledged that his mates loved a good fight. He's supposed to have raced toy yachts on the pools near his home, and around this time he carved and rigged Shamrock, his first model boat. He left school in November 1860, when his parents could no longer afford to pay for his education and needed his wage to support the family. He had a series of jobs from stationer to cutting shirt patterns, which he found rather dull. His early working life wasn't without incident. After fighting with another boy in the pattern department, when asked to explain himself to his boss, he answered, I hit him, sir, because he cut the turi off me bonnet, which translated, as I understand it, the tassel of his hat. He was a confident young man, even asking for a pay rise of 25%, but his bosses were keen to stop this arrogance. You're getting as much as you're worth and then you're in devil of a hurry asking for a rise. So he got a new job as a cabin boy on the Belfast to Glasgow steamer, which was a significant pay rise. He was now earning eight shillings a week. He claimed he was never happier than when in the atmosphere of ships, sailors, boats, and the waterside generally. However, he got the sack for allowing a cabin lamp to smoke and discolour the white enamel of the ceiling. Undeterred and having saved some of his wages and tips, he set his sights on greater adventures. Although he wasn't yet 15, he had ambition, hope, and just about enough money to pay for a berth in steerage on a ship to New York. Arriving in the US, he initially couldn't find work, but then accepted a job in the tobacco fields of Virginia and then a rice plantation in South Carolina. Here he had the responsibility for the finances and bookkeeping, which gave him a good foundation for things to come. At some stage, he went to Charleston and eventually ended up back in New York. 
taking full advantage of his Celtic roots to mix with fellow emigres. Here he got lucky and landed a job as an assistant in a prosperous New York grocery store. He liked it from the start. People must eat, and the store that tempted people to buy goods would never be empty of customers. He quickly learned the grocery trade and the secrets of his future success, picking up the American techniques of salesmanship and advertising, which were to become his trademark. In the spring of 1869, he made the surprising decision to return to Scotland, this at a time when most ambitious young people were going the other way. Arriving back in Glasgow, he hired a cab and on top of it placed a rocking chair and a barrel of flour for his mother. Lipton had the driver proceed slowly along one of the main streets while he waved and shouted greetings to his old friends and neighbours, a spectacle long remembered in the area. From this, you will appreciate he was a showman as well as a would-be entrepreneur. Soon after his return, he took over his parents' shop and quickly turned its fortunes around. His father thought he was aiming too high with his grand plans. Ah, no, Tom, we'd be getting above ourselves. The neighbours would say that the peas were getting above the sticks. After two years working in his parents' shop, on his 21st birthday, Lipton opened his first shop in the heart of industrial Glasgow. The shop was said to be so brightly lit that at night it became a beacon in the street. Goods were stacked in the American fashion, not for the convenience of the proprietors, but with the purpose of catching the customers. Lipton used another selling technique learned from his mother. When his parents had opened their small shop, Mrs. Lipton, rather than deal with middlemen at the markets, dealt directly with the farmers of her Irish homeland. Lipton followed this example. He bought his bacon, eggs, butter and other produce directly from Irish farmers. He was a hard worker, putting in long hours and would often sleep on a makeshift bed under the counter. Gradually, he expanded his business, first moving to larger premises in Glasgow and then setting up shops in Dundee, Paisley, Edinburgh and Leeds. What was unique about his business methods was his use of advertising and gimmicks, tips he'd picked up in the States. He employed the talents of Willie Lockhart, a leading cartoonist of the day, to produce weekly posters for him. One of his most famous shows a typical Irishman, knee breeches, cutaway coat, billycock hat, shenanigans and all alore, with a pig, its eyes full of tears slung in a sack over his shoulder. The caption reads, What's the matter with the pig, Pat? The Irishman replies, Sure is an orphan, so out of pity, I'm taking him to Lipton's. Lipton took this idea and ran with it, buying pigs in the market, tying ribbons to their tails and having them driven through the streets under a banner which declared them to be Lipton's orphans. Each day the pigs were driven to his shop by a different route, bringing in new customers. Sounds a bit like the Pied Piper. The opening for each new Lipton shop brought more newspaper adverts, posters and parades. Lipton himself would be at each opening to offer prizes to his first customers. In 1881, Lipton announced that he was to import the world's largest cheese from New York. Apparently, 800 cows were milked for six days, and it required 200 dairymaids to make this enormous cheese. The streets were lined with spectators cheering the giant cheese on its way to Lipton's new store in the high street. As an added touch, Lipton announced, since it was Christmas, his cheese, like a Christmas pudding, would contain sovereigns and half-sovereigns. When the cheese slices went on sale, they sold out within two hours. These giant cheeses became part of Lipton's Christmas displays. 
One was so large that the manager of Lipton's shop in Nottingham hired an elephant from the local circus to transport it through the town. By 1890, Lipton was extremely rich and successful, but unlike others, he had no desire to get involved in politics. But it's fair to say the peas had definitely outgrown the sticks. However, he wasn't content to sit on his laurels, so look for new options and settled on tea. Now, drinking tea had become much more popular in the Victorian age after the exorbitant import taxes had been reduced. After investigating the trade further with tea brokers in London, he took the decision to do what he'd done with his other commodities and cut out the middleman. Within a year, he was selling huge amounts of tea in a pound, half pound and quarter pound pockets. Now, the blends were made especially for the area around the shop, so Lipton could advertise the perfect tea to suit the water of your town. I'm not sure how scientific it was, or even if it was true, but it was a remarkably innovative idea at that time. Whilst he made substantial profits, the next step was to control the production. He secretly booked a passage to Australia, but disembarked at Colombo in Ceylon to visit the plantations for himself. Back in the summer of 1878, the coffee crop had failed, and whilst South American competition had flourished, coffee on the island was all but wiped out. The result? Well... The price of plantations had dropped, so Lipton bought five and paid far less than he had anticipated. One of the benefits of a salon base was it cut the distance between the crop and market, and so was cheaper than importing Chinese tea. He offered the all-important blenders double their salaries to work for him, and not surprisingly, they were all soon part of his workforce. He then looked at how to improve the collecting and came up with a system that no longer necessitated the pickers to have to come back to base with each full basket. He had a line suspended from the top of a hill down to the base where the pickers could attach their baskets and it would take them down to the plantation factory. It sounds rather like one of those mini ski drag lines. When his plantations were established, he then had a new slogan, direct from the tea garden to the teapot. Even with his 300 shops, they couldn't satisfy the demand for tea in packets at one and seven pence a pound. So Lipton decided to sell it anywhere there was a demand for it, using the same sort of advertising tactics he'd used for his ham and cheese 15 years earlier. In the process, Lipton's became the trademark of a national commodity and a household name. His shops had made him a millionaire, but tea made him a multimillionaire. His greatest thrill, though, was when he gained a royal warrant for supplying tea to Queen Victoria. Other royals followed. His business was expanding rapidly, not only in tea plantations, but also in coffee and cocoa estates. He added Chicago packing companies and meat stores, bakeries, curing stations and wine shops. In the US, he introduced refrigerated wagons with just one word, Lipton's, on the side. When he decided to sell jam, he bought up fruit farms in Kent and Essex after he had personally expected them. Jam led him into the sugar business, and soon he was offering granulated sugar to his customers, once again cutting out the middlemen. As long as his parents were alive, he had resisted the logical move to London. But as more and more decisions were taken south of the border, he spent half his time on trains going back and forth. In 1889, both his parents died within a few months of each other, so he moved south, leasing, and then eventually buying a house at Southgate in North London, called Osage, set in a 60-acre estate. Here he developed a new passion for breeding exotic orchids. It must have been a large hothouse, as every departmental manager would receive a new orchid every morning for their buttonhole. 
He enjoyed entertaining friends and business acquaintances and every year held a special day of sports and entertainment for his office staff in both London and Glasgow. He bought up land for playing fields so his employees could enjoy sporting activities. One spot was next to White Hart Lane in North London, the former home of Tottenham Hotspur. At first, he had three sets of fast horses to take him to his offices in the city, always arriving well before his staff and leaving late. He had a fixed routine when there. His lunch was the same as his dinner. Soup, fish, meat or chicken, and always a rice pudding cooked by a couple of Singhalese servants. He regarded rice as a very beneficial part of his diet. He developed an interest in music and would listen to concerts from London down a special telephone called a theatre phone. His other main interest was sticking newspaper cuttings about himself into scrapbooks. It's reckoned he had more than 80 folios of cuttings kept in a special bookcase. When his new London offices were open in City Road in 1896, a large painting of himself was unveiled in the main hall, paid for by subscription from each of his 3,000 UK employees. It was lent to the Royal Academy the following year for their summer exhibition, in part to quell rumours that he was a figment of the press's imagination. It's rather hard to believe, given the self-publicist that he was, always keen to be present at every shop opening, but seemingly his face wasn't that well known or recognised. Throughout his career, Lipton was noted for his charitable work. One of the earliest and best-known donations was his gift in 1897 of £25,000 for the Princess of Wales plea to provide dinners for the poor of London during the Queen's Diamond Jubilee. That's more than £3 million in today's money. Originally open for subscription, the public donations had been minimal, but Lipton immediately wrote a cheque to cover the project. It was originally an anonymous donation, but a bank official was said to have let slip the origins. It's probably more likely that Lipton steered the press in the right direction after speculation grew over who was the benefactor. Amongst those in the running was William Waldorf Astor. Now, the revelation brought Lipton more fame and an almost heroic status, and the funds were distributed nationwide. Lipton established quite strict criteria. We should not be concerned with extending an invitation to the respectable or deserving poor, but to the hungry. We must feed a man whether he is deserving or not. On June the 22nd, Jubilee Day, tens of thousands flocked in London to nine public halls to receive their food and parcels, and of course, mugs of tea. A few months later, he met the Prince and Princess of Wales, later Edward VII and Queen Alexandra. Edward found him good company, a fellow raconteur. Alexandra was said to have been dazzled by Lipton, who had the bearing of a guardsman, piercing blue eyes and good looks. He worked with her when she was queen to set up the Alexandra Trust, which provided meals at very affordable prices to poor children in London, an initiative that lasted until the Second World War. Not surprisingly, after the Jubilee success, he was knighted in the New Year's Honours, and on walking into his office on the day the news was released, was greeted with a rendition of For He's a Jolly Good Fellow. When the commotion died down, he said, Now I think that'll do, and you had better all take the day off to recover. Lipton, incidentally, was subsequently made a baronet. His business brain never seemed to stop, and he launched his own version of beef extract and took a big chunk of the bovril trade. He also won a large contract to supply meat in the Klondike Gold Rush. 35,000 pigs were slaughtered in his Chicago factory and shipped by refrigerated carriage to the miners. In 1898, Lipton yielded to the public clamour and allowed it his empire to become a limited company. The professional view of the company was that it was well, rock solid, but was no longer capable of drastic expansion. Slow and steady growth would lead to long-term investment, but no quick wins. 
What the professionals didn't take into account was the high regard and affection the public had for the Lipton brand. There was an unprecedented rush for shares. At the National Bank of Scotland, the police had to regulate the crowds. Applications were received for almost £50 million worth of shares. On the 2nd of June that year, Lipton directed his first shareholders' meeting. It was also the first time in 30 years since the opening of his first shop in Glasgow that he'd had to answer to anyone but himself. His newfound fame and high profile brought more intrusive press interest, and it wasn't always plain sailing. An army contract to provide food and provisions for a mammoth exercise involving more than 100,000 men on Salisbury Plain suffered supply problems. It was a sort of North v South competition, but his provision of soft drinks rather than beer and high prices for cakes and buns caused outrage. A shortage of matches and tobacco was the last straw, and some of the Northern Army went on the rampage, looting one of the major canteens. Whilst it caused some embarrassment, a dip in the share price soon followed, but it was overshadowed by his announcement that he was to establish the world's largest coffee plantation in Mexico. Meanwhile, his friendship with the Prince of Wales developed rapidly, shared and strengthened by a passion for their interest in yacht racing. Whilst Lipton enjoyed being part of the yachting fraternity, he couldn't actually sail a boat, a fact his detractors were keen to point out. He undoubtedly wanted to become a member of the Royal Yacht Squadron in Cowes, the premier sailing club. Now, one version is they blackballed him, since although he was a knight and friend of the king, he was in trade, and therefore not a gentleman, and wouldn't have been admitted. There is another version that he was warned off and had withdrawn his application, advised he was ineligible as he was a yacht owner, rather than a yachtsman. Either way, he didn't want to create negative publicity for himself. Incidentally, the Grocers' Federation didn't want him either, because of his commercial and advertising methods. Lipton's most important racing venture was to compete in the world's most famous yacht race, the America's Cup. This is a series of races between one yacht from the US and one from Britain. Between 1899 and 1930, he challenged five times for the Cup, all in yachts named Shamrock to honour his Irish heritage. He'd had to find another club to represent after the snub from the snooty lot in Cowes, so his boats flew the flag of the Royal Ulster Yacht Club. It's said he never set foot inside the club, but occasionally did moor his boat outside. He spent an enormous amount of money on the campaigns, but none of his yachts could beat his US opponents. But his personality, demeanour and sportsmanship endeared him to the American public. So fine a sportsman cannot be found in any country on any ground, where virtue's his, he has no peer. Truth, honour, patience, cheer abound, he holds the old traditions dear. Over the sea in the shamrock green, majestic he came to fulfil a dream. Although America kept the cup, Sir Thomas won a prize supreme. The equally flamboyant mayor of New York said later that he was possibly the world's worst yacht builder, but absolutely the world's most cheerful loser, and they even gave him a cup for his attempts. Not just any old cup, but one of solid gold. Designed by Tiffany's, the cup was 18 inches high, made of 18 karat gold, with a plinth of solid silver, and shamrocks clustered on the lid. Lipton was now moving in exalted circles, invites to Windsor and Balmoral, weekends at Sandringham, Christmas on the Riviera, and trips to the US. His popularity in America increased with every visit, which was a boon to his business. He mixed with everyone from Wall Street to Washington, from the New York Yacht Club to Hollywood. He dined at the White House and entertained President Roosevelt on board his luxury yacht, the Yerin, 
along with most of the European royalty. The Empress Eugenie was a frequent guest and he even arranged a trip for her to Ceylon. Despite his considerable wealth and social standing, he never forgot his humble origins and always showed compassion for the poor and unemployed, particularly in his native Glasgow. In 1902, when a standard eyebrows collapsed, killing scores of spectators, he was quick to send a cheque for the relief of the families of the victims. His generosity spilled over into other fields, including more sporting sponsorship. There was hardly a corner in the world which couldn't boast a Lipton Cup, whether for sailing, racing, cricket or football. One was for football between teams of Argentina and Uruguay, where he had major business interests. Always keen to keep up with the times, his horses were replaced by a fleet of cars. He managed to write off the first, a powerful Daimler, after only a few days. Speeding to the office, he swerved on a wet road to avoid tram lines and crashed into some iron railings. Undeterred, he bought another, even more powerful replacement and became a member of the prestigious Royal Automobile Club. His love of speeding, and we're talking of speeds in the region of only 12 miles an hour at this stage, led him to the magistrate's court on a regular basis. It suggested the police deliberately stationed a man near his house to catch him, presumably if they needed a few bob for the kitty. There were so many endorsements that extra pages had to be added to his driving licence. It even led to a brief imprisonment in northern France after a collision, though a couple of gold coins ensured a swift release. It could have been worse. A near-fatal incident on a railway crossing, also in France, saw him miss the train by inches. His chauffeur also found the wrath of the local magistrate. Most were convinced he was only following the orders of his master in the back seat. Lipton also developed a passion for aviation and went up with Sam Cody to experience the thrills, though perhaps fortunately only ever as a passenger and observer. His popularity in the States was always on the rise and he was regularly seen hobnobbing with Teddy Roosevelt. And in 1903, whilst in Chicago preparing to accompany the King to the World Fair, Lipton collapsed with suspected appendicitis. Now, remarkably, he recovered without recourse to the knife, a dangerous procedure in itself. On the advice of a leading specialist, he was given a high-dose colonic enema consisting of a pint and a half of molasses mixed with the same quantity of hot milk. This did the trick and released the blockage. Fortunately, I have no more details about this procedure. In 1909, Lipton was made a Knight Commander of the Grand Order of the Crown of Italy. By way of thanks, he presented the Italians with a cup to be used for an international football competition. Now, the FA, probably full of the same sort of cronies he found at Cowes, declined to nominate a team to represent Britain in Turin, but they were persuaded to send an invitation, but it's thought it was sent to the wrong team. Instead of going to Woolwich Arsenal, a notable team and precursor to modern-day Arsenal, it arrived on the doormat of a team with the same initials, West Auckland in County Durham. They were the embodiment of amateurism made up mostly of coal miners with no great footballing pedigree, and they had to work hard to raise the money to send a team. But in a story that would be regarded as an outrageous fantasy in fiction, they beat Red Star of Zurich to win the cup. Even more remarkably, they successfully defended the title two years later against Juventus, beating the local side 6-1 in the final. The trophy wasn't competed for again, but Lipton is often credited with initiating the first World Cup. West Auckland were allowed to keep the trophy, though it was stolen in 1994, but they now hold a replica. After the death of King Edward in 1910, Lipton was one of many no longer so closely allied to the monarchy. 
The business world had changed too, and he spent much more time travelling abroad. Embroiled in a court case over one of his subsidiary company's bribing officials, the scandal meant he lost a war office contract. Despite this, when war broke out, he fitted out his steam yacht Erin as a Red Cross ship and transported a field hospital to France. Later, the Erin was used to transport surgeons, nurses and orderlies to Serbia, which was under attack from the superior forces of the Austria-Hungary. The boat was then given to the Royal Navy and carried out many missions, but was sunk by mines off Malta in 1916 while trying to rescue the crew of another ship. Lipton, meanwhile, busied himself supplying food parcels and entertainments, including regular charity football matches. Employees decorated for war gallantry were given gold watches. By now, he'd returned to work full-time as the volume of business in his shops increased, as did his fundraising activities. He had a ticker tape machine at home so he could keep an eye on the US stock markets. An excellent billiards player, he would play with the guests till quite late and then go back to his study to finish work. Like Astor, Lipton was a teetotaler, but he kept a good cellar, though spirits were never served. But there was always an abundance of fruit, some of which grown in his own hothouses. Whilst he rarely dressed formally for dinner at home, if he had weekend guests, he would insist they went with him after Sunday lunch on an outing to North Mims, no doubt near to South Mims of motorway service folk. The cars would be laden down with hampers full of chocolates for the village children. He would then, with great showmanship, hand them out from his open Mercedes, and as many as 300 children would be waiting in the queue. The ritual was so popular, the local priest complained it deprived him of a congregation for his Sunday school. The chocolate distribution became another ritual on his annual trips to Glasgow post-war. Lipton's genial presence and popularity had been a useful tool in improving Anglo-American relations over several decades, probably most importantly post the First World War, to assuage the American-Irish-Americans' hostilities over the Irish relations with Britain. He'd returned to America's Cup action, but again failed to win the Cup by a narrow margin. Back home, he'd become a theatre buff and first-nighter in the company of a fellow millionaire, Scotsman Tom Dewar. T. Tom and Whiskey Tom, as they were affectionately known. The rivalry between the two was over the popularity of their products. On one occasion, Whiskey Tom cabled from Africa to say that he'd found that three pounds of tea would buy six wives out there. Lipton replied, I'm sending you three parcels of samples of best tea. Please arrange for samples of wives. Lipton was wealthy, good-looking and affable, and therefore particularly eligible. He was regarded as a ladies' man and an adept flirt, and there was never a shortage of female company or speculation he was about to get engaged to one of the many beauties he was seen with. He said he never married because no one matched up to his mother, but the records do prove otherwise. As a young man, he had married and had two children, but it wasn't a success. His first child died in infancy, and his wife and other son emigrated to Canada. His eligible bachelor image was in fact a front to disguise his true sexuality. His male partner of 30 years was one of his former employees, William Love, who had remained in Scotland. That relationship ended rather abruptly when Love, rather surprisingly, got married. Despite his titles, Lipton regarded his greatest honour was being made a Freeman of Glasgow in 1923. He was recognised too by Time magazine the following year. By 1926, the business demands exceeded even his workaholic capabilities, and with increasingly twitchy shareholders angry at the diminishing returns, dividends down from 10%, he resigned from the board in 1927. In his later years, he developed paranoia, 
even to the extent of installing listening devices in the sofas so he could listen in on his executives when left alone. Whilst troubled in the UK, he apparently had no such problems in the US, where he was still a celebrity and his business interests thrived. He even took to be driven slowly through New York, wearing his yachting cap so he could be more easily recognised. In 1929, on his way back from the US, he made history with the first ship-to-shore radio telephone message. He was 200 miles out from New York, and the call was to his advertising agency in the city. For five minutes, they discussed a new advertising campaign, but apparently the call included a coded message from his agent about some age-old compromising letters he'd sent to a Russian princess. The femme fatale demanded compensation, either matrimonial, well, unlikely, or financial, or else she would go to the press. The casual message of good wishes let Lipton know the princess had been paid off successfully with a cheque for £10,000. But, not surprisingly, then as now, the news later leaked out, successively to two different American tabloids. But, such was the esteem he was held in, and his age, he was now 80, that after intervention from his friends, both refused to print the story. His last trip was in 1930 to the States, and the following year he was eventually admitted as a member of the Royal Yacht Squadron. Sadly, he had little time to enjoy their privileges, had he wished to do so. In late September, he caught a chill after going for a drive and went down with a cold. After suffering for a few days, he seemed to be on the mend, and October the 1st, he entertained guests at dinner and a game of billiards at his home. Later that night, he was found unconscious and died the following evening, the 2nd of October, 1931. The papers were fulsome in their obituaries, stressing the important role he had played in cementing good relations between Britain and the US. An astonishing feat given the sensitivities of both countries, but testament to his ability to judge the mood and feelings of the people he mixed with. He was 83 years of old and was said to have been planning his sixth attempt at the America's Cup. Thousands of Glaswegians filed past his coffin in St George's Church, and huge crowds lined the streets as the funeral cortege made its way to the cemetery. He was buried beside his mother and father in the southern necropolis in Glasgow. Since he had no living relatives, the terms of his will were to benefit the city of his birth. £80,000 was left to establish the Francis Lipton Memorial Fund for the benefit of poor mothers and their children. His yachting trophies and press cuttings collection were also left to the city, the former house at Kelvin Grove Museum. He left specific bequests at Glasgow hospitals. Servants and friends were also included. His London house, Osage, became the Sir Thomas Lipton Memorial Hospital for Retired Nurses in memory of his mother. The residue of his estate was to be used by his trustees for the benefit of the poor in Glasgow. The Lipton brand is still going strong, though the tea is now picked in Dubai. Ironically, the Brits are probably less well acquainted with it and its yellow packaging, though for decades it was, and maybe still is, the main brand served up if you ask for tea in the US. Thank you. This podcast has been produced by the Mr T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A World History Group. Thank you very much for listening to this talk.